0: this again this morning spending some time here in this very important portion of Romans 12 and today we're going to be discussing and beginning to really discuss the priority of the body of Christ the priority of the body of Christ so Romans chapter 12 and just for our hearing in the context I'm going to read what the word of God says in verses 1 through 5. Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as god has dealt to each one a measure of faith for as we have been for as we have many members in one body but all the members do not have the same function so we being many are one body in christ and individually members of one another the past few decades a cancer has invaded the body of christ it's a very destructive and deadly cancer to the intended function in the ministry of the church. And since the invention of the internet, especially with social media and YouTube, the cancer has become pandemic. This cancer supplants local leadership in churches. It minimizes the need and the effectiveness of the local member of the body. It exalts certain gifts and degrades others. It emphasizes popularity over priorities and makes the ministry more what you see, hear, and feel than how you serve. It radically changes the perspective of the church to what I can get rather than what I can give. It, the end result of the cancer is a me-centered church where what is done is for me. It is a cancer that permeates through all the soft tissue of the body of Christ into the main organs of the body and eventually into its very bones. It strikes at the very DNA of the body of Christ and renders it helpless, ineffective, and eventually dead. It's like a cancer. And the only way you treat a cancer is to annihilate it. You kill it. And if you don't, and you leave any residual elements of that cancer behind, then it can spread again and cause as much or more damage than before. This cancer I'm talking about has two features or two characteristics, and I would categorize them by two words, popularism and professionalism. And what I mean by the ism on the end of it, I'm referring to a practice of a doctrine or the incorporation of an ideology to produce a certain result. Both of these characteristics, uh, popularism and professionalism, have devastating and have had devastating effects on the body of Christ. The first I want to just share a few moments with you about is popularism. Now, probably a better word for you to understand what I'm talking about is celebrity Christianity. Celebrity Christianity. This includes all the popular preachers and teachers, musicians and singers and entertainers. Now for clarification, I'm not including those popular false teachers such as Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Myers, Andy Stanley, or Stephen Furtick. I'm not talking about those because I'm not, I'm sure that at least I hope that most of you in here are not listening to any of them. I want to bring this home to all of us. I want us to think not about the church down the road, not the body over there, but us, this body here at this church. I mean, I'm convinced that you understand that we are considered an orthodox church. We believe what is right. We're biblical and we're creedal. We desire biblical exposition. We desire theological integrity. We're committed to the fundamentals of the evangelical doctrines. We're committed to the scripture and committed to its accuracy. We love the Bible and love it taught accurately. We desire it. And we desire not only to know it, but to apply it in our lives and our family and our church. So to be clear, I don't want us to think that I'm talking about any other church other than ours. I want us to talk about us. I want us to bring it home practically. I know that sometimes whenever a pastor preaches, someone walks out the door and says, was he talking about me today? Yes. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about this body. Frankly, I don't shepherd other bodies. I shepherd this body, this church. So that is my passion and that is my concern. And I'm not saying that all preachers, by the way, desire to be popular. In fact, the ones that I know personally that are popular don't desire popularity, they have no desire for it whatsoever. I know speaking to Paul Washer on this occasion about this very thing, he absolutely despises the popularity that has come as a result of his ministry. He has no desire for it whatsoever. So I'm not saying that just because someone is popular that they necessarily desire that popularity. Sometimes it just simply comes because it is the world we live in, is it not? Well, what I am talking about is the cancer of this popularism, this celebrity Christianity that has affected the church in many ways. And there's a few concerns I have here that I want to share with you, if you'll just think with me through these things. And the first is this, this kind of popularism actually leads to an unhealthy elevation of man in ministry, an unhealthy elevation of man in ministry. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that the Bible does teach us that we are to esteem the ones that God has placed in leadership. It's very clear that there is to be honor where honor is due, and there is to be esteem for those leaders and preachers that deliver the word of God and those that lead in the church and serve in the church. There's no doubt about that. But it can easily lead to an unhealthy elevation of man where we have a tendency to forget exactly who placed that man there and what God's doing through that man and that that man can never do anything that's effective in the body of Christ apart from God's grace. And it's a biblical challenge, no doubt it is for us to understand that and to kind of keep that in perspective. It's easy to find out that you can begin to drift toward the elevation of a particular pastor or a particular theologian or teacher or even singer, as far as that is concerned, and miss the important part of the ministry of Christ and, as I'll share with you later, what the body of Christ is for. You end up, if you're not careful if you do this, that if you begin to elevate one man particularly or a number of men, you end up in your own echo chamber listening to only those men And you're unwilling to go beyond anyone else or listen to anyone else because they don't believe the same things that your men believe or your teachers believe. Or perhaps maybe they don't handle things exactly the way you should. So you have to be very, very careful of this because it can lead to an idolization of men in ministry or people who lead in ministry. The second warning I would have regarding that is this, this popularism can produce an unhealthy and deadly view of the body of Christ. And this is really where I'm going today. Because what happens whenever this is done, and there's the elevation of one man or one teacher or a number of men over the body of Christ, it begins to minimize the unique nature of the giftedness of the body. And it begins to teach, if by default anyway, that because of the importance of this person or that person, the body doesn't really matter or the gifted nature of the body doesn't really matter. It can be seen in this attitude. Oh, it's just you preaching. So I'm going to stay home today and I'm not going to come because it's just you or sometimes there'll be even the indication that I'm coming, but I'm going to listen to my favorite man rather than listen intently to what God is going to give through another man in the ministry of the body of Christ. The tragic implication of all of this is that unless it is so and so preacher, we have a tendency to kind of step back and not listen as intently and not be as engaged. And some have even taken the opportunity to say, well, you know what? It's just so and so I'm going to stay home and I'm not even going to come to a Bible study or a fellowship group. I mean, really, have we become so arrogant that we believe that there's nothing God could give to us through someone else? Have we got so arrogant that we believe that God who sovereignly places people in the body of Christ cannot know what is best for us in our Christian life? I mean, God has given gifts to the body, has he not? And it is his goal, it is his goal to make you more like the image of Jesus Christ. So he knows what you need. He knows what is best for this local assembly. So his desire is to put in this local assembly the men, the women who have the gifts to the body of Christ so that you can be equipped and built up to become more like Jesus Christ. A third concern I have about popularism is that there's a tendency to produce isolation rather than infiltration. And I'm using the word infiltration in a good way, meaning that we should be purposely intentional on engaging with one another. We should be purposely intentional on engaging with one another. Now, I know, I've been around a a number of you already to know this, that some of you are isolationist. I mean, you, frankly, are more comfortable just to be home by yourself. And you would just rather not be around crowds, and you don't care to engage in a lot of conversations with people. In fact, you might go as far as to say, I just don't like people. Ah, got a few people like that, right? And so you have to work hard at that, don't you? You have to work proactively to make yourself engage with the body of Christ, to use the gifts that God has given to you so that you're able to minister effectively in the body of Christ. It's easy to become an isolated person. It's easy to come and just sit, listen, and leave. It's easy not to invite someone over or to talk to someone or spend a couple of hours with someone around a a cup of coffee or something like that. It's very easy in our in our, co- our culture and our context, to do that. In fact, sometimes I think because of what is often thrown at, thrown at us on a regular basis, we, we would rather just have some time alone. And I know I understand that. I get that. But I think we have to really work at that problem that we want to find ourselves spending more and more time alone rather than involving ourselves with the body of Christ. Now think about the imagery given to us in the scripture of the body. I mean, Paul later on uses the physical body as an analogy to compare it to the spiritual body of Christ. Can you imagine just for a moment if your pancreas said to you, oh, I just want to be isolated. I really don't want to be engaged at all. I mean, that little organ that small little organ that's kind of tucked right underneath the stomach, right next to the liver and the large intestines, if it just basically said, you know what, I'm just not going to engage anymore. It's too difficult. Well, guess what happens? You die. That's what happens. And it happens rather rapidly, by the way. And so you need to understand that every single part of the body of Christ is absolutely essential. There is no such thing as an isolated part of the body that has no purpose and no plan in God's uh, body of Christ. But that's not really what I'm talking about when it comes to this. Popularism and celebrity Christianity produce a tendency to be with the ones we love the most. In other words, I would rather just listen to him or I would just rather read him or that person or follow after this person instead of. Understanding that God has purposely and sovereignly placed in the body of Christ unique gifted people for your edification and to build you up and to make you more like Jesus. I mean, there are tendencies. I mean, listen, I've been there before. I understand this. I can preach to myself as well as I can you. Well, you know, I don't know what I want. I don't want to really go on Wednesday night because it's just so and so speaking. It's not that important. I've been over that subject before. Or I don't want to go to that fellowship group or that Bible study because after all, I mean, I already know what they're talking about. Or maybe because it's Bible ed, I can sleep in a little bit. It doesn't really have any effect at all. Folks, I'll be honest with you. Whenever we begin to do that, we adopt a philosophy of our own Christian life that is going to damage us. It will damage us in many ways. It's kind of like smartphones in a doctor's office. Have you ever noticed that before? When you go to a doctor's office, everybody has a smartphone. But nobody talks to each other anymore. They all just sit there and stare at the smartphones. My mom says that all the time. Every time we go to the doctor, I took her to the doctor this past week. She goes, nobody talks to anybody anymore. And she'll say this every single time. This is not the America I grew up in. And it's not, it used to be whenever you would go to a doctor's office, you would engage with someone, you would talk to someone, or even if you were in the elevator. I know when I'm in an elevator, I talk to people, but now we don't talk anymore. We like that isolation. And it's easy to do that, is it not? I mean, even in our own uh, culture where we have the rampant use of video games, it's very easy for a young man or a young woman to isolate themselves in the bedroom and never engage with the family. Now I'm gonna tell you right up front, both of these things are damaging. They do not do us good, they do us harm. And we need to understand that we are not people that are meant for isolation at all. We are meant to be social people, some more than others, for sure. But the point is the body of Christ does not work with isolation. It does not work with just going after the man that you like the most. And you listen to him and you say, well, I'm not really going to pay attention to the other people that God has placed in the body of Christ at all. I mean, we are, according to scripture, we are all one body and members. Listen to this of one another. We are joined together by the same common life blood of Jesus Christ and are listen to this and are in great need of one another whether you believe that or not you are in great need of one another I mean you can't isolate parts of the body nor can you isolate parts of the body of Christ like for instance if the if you isolate the leg or the arm it dies if you isolate the lung or the liver it dies if you isolate your little pinky or your little toe it dies isolation kills and always has a negative impact on the body so we need to be careful of popularism where we're all concerned about making sure we listen to the one person we like the most and say to the body of Christ you just don't really have anything to say at all that's tragic and very very dangerous and the fourth thing about popularism is this it can lead to the implica- impl- implication of insignificance of insignificance I mean after all because you're not the most oratory skilled person you're not the one who's the most articulate and you're not you maybe not the best preacher or teacher or whatever it can be implied that you are insignificant to my f- spiritual growth as a Christian far worse that you're even expendable that you really don't have any purpose in my life as a believer just because you may not have a certain skill set or a certain talent or a certain gift you are in many ways by the minds of some relegated to the shelf. I mean, you're good to look at and you make the shelf look full, but if you're missing, nobody really misses you. You have to ask yourself a question. Whenever people are not here at this church, do you miss them? Do you, do you take notice of people who don't show up, who don't come? Maybe for a number of reasons, they could have been discouraged, they could have been sick, they could have just not had the encouragement necessary that they needed. A hundred other things could be the part, but we need to be very careful that we don't become that part where we think that these people are just insignificant because they're not skilled, they're not gifted, they don't have talents that we have, or that are the most popular That's one of the things I think has hurt us in many ways and I'll have to be the first to tell you I really think I am thankful in many ways for the available teaching that we have online but at the same time if you always hear the very best it's hard to hear the less you know what I'm saying I mean he just doesn't have it he doesn't have the ability to do as so-and-so does or so-and-so teaches and He doesn't have the insight necessarily that so-and-so does. And we have to be careful what we're doing is we're minimizing the gifts that God gave to the church. And we're saying to to the people that are in there that God has sovereignly placed there that they are not as important as the ones on YouTube or the ones on certain ministries or conferences. This was a huge problem in the early church when the sign gifts were prevalent. Whenever there was prophecy and miraculous gifts and the giving of languages where people would speak in unknown languages of that time and they would have someone who would interpret those things, the tendency was to make the public gifts, the showy gifts as some have called them, the most popular and the most sought after gifts in the the body of Christ. And the ones that were gifts like mercy and exhortation and giving and service were just Relegated to the back and they weren't as important to the body of Christ and Paul had to address this on a number of occasions because they were exalting and making more popular the public gifts and minimizing the other gifts that by the way are just as important if not in many ways more important and there was also the problem with the elevation of the apostles of that day I mean Paul had to deal with this also where there were those that were exalting the, the apostles over the local pastor teachers of the churches of that time. Some were saying, like he said, on one occasion, I am, of a, I am of Paul. And another one says, I'm of Apollos. And they're just making these people so popular and emphasizing their publicity and their giftedness and their position in the body of Christ that the other ones are relegated to a lack of importance. That's not the way God ever intended it to be at all. The ones who have the better speaking skills and the ones who can preach more effectively are usually the ones that are elevated. The ones who have the doctorate degrees and the PhDs or the ones who have written a book or authored a book. But I can tell you from my own personal experience that there are hundreds of servants of God in local churches all throughout this world who are effective for the body of Christ and have never written a book. Have never got a degree. But God is using them effectively in their bodies for Christ. We may not have the miraculous gifts in our early church. Like the early church did. But we still have the same problem. We elevate the public gifts. And we consider the ones that are not as public minimal. Or or not even needed. And we often forget just how much the body needs those gifts in fact most of what the body needs is not seen is that not true i mean think about your own body you have the physical body the outside of the body you have the skin the eyes the mouth the nose the ears the hair whether you're big or small tall or short or muscular or soft But all the other details of the body are hidden are they not I mean you have to understand what you are on the outside has a lot to do with what you are on the inside if things go awry on the inside you might be really messed up on the outside and so we can't say that what's on the external of the body is the only thing that matters because it's what's on the inside deep within the body that often makes the rest of the external stuff work like for instance I mean someone who has a great capacity to speak and they have oratory skill and their mouth may speak and their tongues and their lips may move and produce words but unless the lungs take in the air and push it over the vocal cords none of that other stuff matters at all so popularism and the tendency to follow after celebrity christianity leads to a number of issues that need to be avoided the first is It can produce an unhealthy elevation of the man in ministry. Secondly, it produces an unhealthy and deadly view of the local body of Christ. Third, popularism has a tendency to produce isolation rather than infiltration in the body. And fourth, popularism can lead to the implication of gifts and people in the body being insignificant. These are all bad, but that's not the only cancer that we're dealing with today. The other one is, and it's just as devastating, I call it, professionalism professionalism Uh, popularism is cancerous and so is professionalism this is the clergy laity division problem the clergy laity division it's the idea that these guys who are educated and have the degrees and ordained they're the ones who do the ministry and we watch them do the ministry and it becomes professionalism now for clarification i'm not saying that there is no need for pastors and teachers and deacons and certain offices in the church. I'm not saying that there's no need for education and seminaries and those things that are very helpful to help men be well-trained and others be well-trained in ministry, uh, whether it's counseling, raising of children, conflict management, or expository preaching. All of those things have their place, and there needs to be training for all of those things. But to say that the only ones who can do it are the professionals is the wrong approach to the body of Christ. It's the wrong approach. It creates a disabled body where the head does everything and it drags the body along. And that's not what God ever intended for the body of Christ to be. We are to be the whole body of Christ. And whenever we don't have that and the professionals do all the work, we are ineffective and incompetent to say the least. There's no doubt about that. The church has become like the wife who knows her husband can fix things around the house but would rather hire professionals right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Honey, I know you can do this, but shouldn't we hire somebody to do this? I mean, the husband can get it done, right? I mean, he can ask a few questions from a few friends, or he can maybe read up on it and do exactly the way the professional would do it. It may look a little bit different, but it'll be done, right? But we have a tendency to do that in the church we want to hire the guy we want to get the guy that has got the degree to do what needs to be done because quote we may assume that no one else can do that in the church and we short circuit the body of christ that god is gifted by his own sovereign pleasure to make the body do what god's called it to do we want the professional pastor the professional counselor the professional evangelist the professional worship leader or the professional church manager but really is there such thing or such an animal as that is there really? Is there a pastor and then a professional pastor? Is there a Christian counselor and then a professional counselor? Is there a worship leader and then a professional worship leader? Is there such thing as someone who's a church manager and then a professional church manager? Well, the world of church business would tell us, yes. John Piper wrote a book a number of years ago called Brothers, We are not professionals in that book. He said this, is there professional praying? Is there professional trusting in God's promises, professional weeping over souls, professional musing on the depths of revelation? Is there professional rejoicing in the truth, professional praising God's name? Is there professional treasuring of the riches of Christ professional walking by the spirit? Is there a professional exercise in spiritual gifts? A professional dealing with demons, a professional pleading with backsliders, a professional perseverance in a hard marriage. Is there such thing as a professional playing with children, a professional courage to face the persecution or a professional patience with everyone? He went on to say in that same chapter, he said, these are the margin. These are not marginal activities in the pastoral life. These are central. These are the essence of ministry. Why do we choke on the word professional in those connections? Because professionalization carries the connotation of education, a set of skills, and a set of defined standards, which are, listen to this, which are possible without the spirit of God. And sometimes that's exactly what happens. We end up with the professionals doing everything, but there's no spirit involved in it. There's no spirit involved in it. We are not, listen to this. This is going to be a shock to all of us, I'm sure. We're not dependent upon the professionals to get the work of the ministry done. We're not. We're not dependent upon the professionals to get the ministry done. We don't necessarily need the PhDs and those who are educated in the elite schools. What we do need, however, is piety that is dependent upon the word of God and the spirit of God through prayer. Christianity is not professional. It is supernatural. Supernatural. What happens with the professionalization of Christianity is that the body of Christ and its giftedness is relegated to a secondary role. Instead of the primary, it's considered minimally helpful, if helpful at all. And sometimes it has been said that these people just get in the way of us growing the church. And they'll say, well, you need the professional to sort it all out. Or you need the man or woman who has the degrees to sort it all out. Now, again, I'm not saying there's not a place for degrees. Don't misunderstand what I'm telling you. I'm not saying that there's not a place for education and understanding what God's word says in many ways. But to minimize these things is to be definitely defective and dangerous. Listen to how Paul addressed this issue. And I find this amazing. If you can turn with me just for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and I'll show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a very popular passage because it talks about true Christians acting in a carnal way. Not being carnal Christians, there is no such thing, but actually Christians who are spiritual acting carnally, acting like carnal men. But notice what happens here. This is an amazing statement given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3 and following. He says this, For where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Now, what kind of division is he talking about? What kind of envy is he talking about? What kind of strife is he talking about? Well, he goes on to tell us what it is. Look at verse four. For when one says, I am of Paul and another says, I am of Apollos. Are you not what? Carnal. Whenever you elevate one man above another, whenever you say he's the most important thing and the rest of the body of Christ doesn't matter, you're carnal. You're creating unnecessary divisions in the body of Christ. He went on to say in verse 5, who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? And he gives who they are. They're ministers. That is the point that he's making is not ministers with a capital M, but ministers with a small M. This is the word, by the way, we get the word deacon from diakonos it means server or waiter in fact it was used in acts chapter 6 as we all know there to refer to the men who served tables they brought food to the widows i love what macarthur says about this very thing he says you know whenever you consider yourself a minister of christ your job is to get the food to the table without spilling it that's your job Putting it in the perspective of the biblical teacher, your job is to get the word of God to the people without messing it up. And Paul says, listen, we are just ministers. We're just servants through whom you believe. God used us to bring you to faith in Christ. But the point is, God used us to bring you to faith in Christ. As the Lord gave to each one, he says in verse six, I planted Paul did. That is Apollos watered. And here's the point. God gave the increase. If God did not give the increase, it wouldn't matter who planted and who watered. Right? So then he says in verse seven, so then neither he who plants is anything. Now that's a, that goes back to what we said last week in chapter 12, verse three, Don't think so highly of yourself. Paul says, listen, you're nothing. (laughs) You think you're something, you're nothing. You're a seed planter. That's what you do. You plant seeds. And if God does not give the increase, nothing happens. Nothing happens. So he goes on and says here in this text, verse eight, now he who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, for the same purpose, for the same intent of the ministry to see people come to Jesus Christ. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And then he says in verse 9. I love this. He says for we are God's fellow workers. The Greek word ergos is a combination of the words soon and ergos to work together. It basically refers to someone who's a co-worker. A co-laborer. He says we are just co-laborers in God's field. We're out there laboring to do what God's called us to do. So that he can give the increase To the seeds planted and to the water given to the seeds. He goes on and refers to the church also as God's field in verse 9 and also God's building. He says, according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. Paul had the right perspective. He understood who he was in light of the ministry of God, that he wasn't the beginning and the end of it all. In fact, he was nothing apart from the grace of God giving benefit to the work. One other thing, just back up for a moment. You're still in 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. This is going along the same lines. Paul had already addressed this issue earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Uh, Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there are no divisions among you, but that you perfectly be joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. What's he talking about? Well, let's read a little further. What division is he referring to? For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Cleo's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, I say this that each one of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, which is Peter, and then there's the guy who's always more spiritual, I'm of Christ. Right? What does Jesus say? Is Christ divided? No. What are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you taking this person and elevating them to a point that you think that without them you could not have been saved? God has his own purpose. Paul even went on to say this sarcastically Was Paul crucified for you? What's the answer? We all know the answer to that. No. I mean, we think about that when it comes to different giftedness in the body of Christ. We need to get it in perspective that all of us have a purpose, but none of us died for you. Christ did. Christ did. He went on to say why, he says, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. The point is, it's all about Jesus Christ. Listen, you don't own it. You did not build it. You did not supply the material for it. You simply manage what God gave. That's what we're doing. We're stewards. You remember that? Look at 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4. We talked about this a little bit last week. Just to highlight a couple of other words here. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 and following. Paul now, remember what he's, what he's talked about. Chapter 1, chapter 3. Where these people are exalting Paul, exalting Apollos, exalting Peter claiming this kind of popular professionalism of these guys. And so what does Paul finally conclude in chapter four, verse one, when a man considers us, consider us as servants of Christ. Remember that word last week, huperetes, under rower. He means basically I'm the guy at the bottom of the ship pulling my oar, doing the job that God's called me to do. That's who I am. He goes on in verse two and says, moreover, it is required of a steward which he says, I am, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God, that one be found faithful. The word steward comes from a Greek word that means house manager, house manager. He says, I'm an under rower, I'm pulling my oar, I'm doing my service to God, what he's called me to do, and all he requires of me is to be found faithful, to manage the house that God is building, to manage it. So Paul puts in perspective correctly what needs to be put in perspective, that it's not just the professionals who make it happen. It's all the body of Christ that makes it happen. It's all the body of Christ. Paul despised the exaltation of the professionalization of his own ministry. He wanted them to understand, and he repeats this many, many times in Corinthians and also in Romans, the place of the body, the priority of the body of Christ. And we don't want to find ourselves, even in this church, being tempted, personally being tempted to think, I don't matter. You matter as much as any other part of that body matters. You might not have a vocal and prominent and well-known gift, but in the background, I know people in this church who do this. They minister effectively to people in the background. They're sitting with people, comforting them, suffering with them, praying with them talking to them, encouraging them, teaching them, doing all those things that are so critical to the body of Christ being all that God imagines it and actually ordains it to be. And today's American evangelical church needs to own this rebuke. We have a professionalization of American evangelicalism. We We do. And we've literally forgot about the point of the body. I remember many years ago now, There was a lot of discussion about spiritual gifts. You remember that? In fact, you could go online and you could fill out your spiritual gifted survey and you could figure out where you were. I I remember whenever Charles Stanley was preaching on that, he preached a lot on that early in his ministry, a lot about spiritual giftedness. And I remember me going through his whole, and he had, usually he had sermons that had 15 points, usually. And I remember going through those lists and thinking, okay, I fit that, I fit that, I fit that. But I don't fit that and I don't fit that and I'm not like that. Trying to figure out what my spiritual gift is. But you know what? It's very simple. I'm off track for a moment. Let me just go over here for a second and drop this footnote. Here it is Spiritual gifts are as unique as snowflakes. Okay? Because every person is gifted differently. There may be a number of gifts of teaching in this church, but everybody teaches differently. And there's a lot of reason behind that because they're raised differently, they're taught differently, they have different talents, different gifts, different skills. There are other people who are much, much more merciful than I would ever be, much more compassionate than I ever would be. And there are those who have the gift of exhortation. There are those who have the gift of giving. In fact, if there's ever an opportunity to give, they're the first in line to say, I really want to give to this. I want to contribute to this, not only financially, but also time-wise. And the list goes on and on, but the gifts of the body are very, very unique you're not going to be able to meet necessarily every single little item down a survey and say, I fit that. You're going to be different than everybody. And God knows that. God's purposed that. This body's different than the body down the road. But ultimately, all together, we're one big body of Christ, and God in his own purposes has his reasons for orchestrating it that way and setting it up and ordaining it that way. So Paul was against the professionalization of Christianity and he emphasized many many times the need for the body of Christ and we need to be careful of those dangers popularism and also professionalism so with that said I want to move a little further now and just really get to the text for a few moments because these things are important to remind ourselves of but it's more important to know what the word of God says about the actual body of Christ now we're talking about as i said this body specifically there's the broader body no doubt of the whole body of christ but remember paul has spent the first 11 chapters on the doctrine of salvation then he comes to that initial first command to give yourself totally devoted to jesus christ now the first application of that is what the body life i find that rather interesting Because down the list of Romans chapter 12, there's a lot of very important things that he gives to us. How we're to love without hypocrisy. How we're not to return vengeance. How we're to love our enemies and so forth. Those are very practical and sometimes very hard to live. But the first thing he addresses is how you and I are to interact with one another and understand our relationship in the body of Christ. Because there is the temptation... There really is. There is the temptation to minimize the things that aren't as public and don't seem on the surface to be giving us what we need. And by the way, I think also it's important to realize this, that every person matters. And so it's important to point out that for people who don't come to church, who could come to church, they affect the body of Christ. They affect this ability to come. I'm not to do what god's called it to do i'm not talking about the people who have sickness issues disabilities that don't allow them to come but did you know there's a growing popu- population of internet christians they believe that they just do what they can do by watching it on tv i don't know how you do the lord's supper in that i don't know how you you actually flesh out the body life of the the body of christ i don't know how you do the one another's in that context it doesn't work it doesn't work it affects the person who doesn't attend and participate in the fellowship and it affects the local body that doesn't get the benefit of that brother or sister who should be there exercising the giftedness that god's given them in the body so look at verse three let's go back to that just for a moment paul says for i say through the grace given to me To everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, just as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another." So the emphasis clearly here by the Apostle Paul at the very beginning here is on the need to recognize the usefulness of every single part of the body of Christ. Every single part. This is really Paul's ABCs of church life. This is what this is. You're getting down to the very foundational ABCs of what he expects you to understand about church life. And there are three things in this text, verses 3 through 5, the admonition, the anatomy, and the analogy We won't get through all of it, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. But the first is the admonition, which we've already went over last week and spent a great deal of time on. And the point of that was not to think too highly of yourself. You remember what Paul just said earlier in 1 Corinthians? One plants, one waters, but we're nothing. Now, it's not to say, as I said last week, we're worms, we're useless, we don't have a place or a purpose. You know, please don't even talk to me. I just have no reason to exist. That's not what he's saying at all. He's just simply saying, don't think more highly than you ought to think. That's why he says to think soberly. In other words, the word soberly is a word that has the idea of thinking sanely. Don't be insane about yourself. All right? Think sanely about yourself. Soberly, rightly, as you ought to think. Understand your place and your position in the body of christ and the simple way to do that if you want to have just a maybe four things to keep you in the right place to keep me in the right place is this remember who you were all right before you were saved remember who you were secondly remember what you deserved which is hell and judgment and death then third remember what you are because of christ and then fourth remember all that you are and all that you have came from him You keep all of those in your mind you'll be thinking right where i came from what i deserved what i am now because of jesus and that everything that i am and that i have and that i own and that i i can be is all because of what god gives me that puts everything in perspective and you're able to think is the word to think with sound judgment sound mind soberly about yourself and not to be puffed up about your own abilities and your own uh, capabilities and frankly your own giftedness your own giftedness i mean whatever gifts you have in the body of christ are granted to you sovereignly by god and you are not the best thing since cornbread you're not and as i told you i've recognized this over the years i mean i think when i first became a christian and i was pastoring my first church i thought i was that was it I mean, I had, I had the ability and the know-how and the want to, and I was going to make things happen. I learned real quick, like, God's going to humble you. I was talking to a very dear friend of mine this past uh, week uh, down in Florida, and he's actually having to go through some very, very hard time in his church. He's been pastoring a church now for eight years in a very difficult area of Jacksonville. And, uh, the church has grown up to about 25 and then 35 through naval families of the, uh, Mayport Naval station. And then they would leave, get transported out. So his church would go back down. So he's now down to eight at the most, maybe five and three of those are his family. So he's considering whether or not he needs to continue in this church ministry after having been there for eight years. Now he has a lot of other issues he's dealing with, with a disabled son that constantly has seizures which keep him up at night, him and his wife both. His wife is never able to come to church because of the actual seizures of the son, because whenever he does have seizures, he literally yells out, screams out, and there's no way to control it. It's very, very difficult all the way through. This man has a tremendous love for God, a tremendous devotion to Christ. He's like the guy that you would think should have a ministry somewhere that God has blessed tremendously, but for God's sovereign purposes, he's kept him right there. The thing he told me this past week, we were discussing the passage over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul the Apostle is talking about God delivering him to a messenger of Satan called the thorn in the flesh. And I recounted to you last week, I believe correctly, that that is probably referring to a satanic conspiracy against the Apostle's ministry at that time. And the whole point of that was to make sure that even though Paul had received so much revelation from God, had gone to the third heaven, seen things, heard things that you and I could not even begin to conceive of, nor could he actually speak of, and so God kept him humble by delivering to him a messenger from Satan to buffet him all the time. And I remember Steve was accounting for me, recounting a situation where he was pastoring another church, and he had not learned... How to go into a church with a great deal of humility and to teach people with long suffering, knowing that you're not hurting cattle, you're teaching people. And he would come in and he said, This is wrong, 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 wrong." straighten it all out. Well, he found out what was out is him. Didn't go over too well because he was trying to move them like cattle instead of like people not being long-suffering and teaching with long-suffering. He said he sat outside one day in the church parking lot weeping. He was listening to a message by John MacArthur on that very passage about the thorn in the flesh. And he said this, sometimes God uses the satanic conflict in a church to humble its pastor. I never forgot that. Because that is so true, folks, some of the things that come into our lives, when we begin to think a little higher than we ought about ourselves, God will bring things into our lives, sovereignly and purposely, even through Satan, and humble you. And he'll keep you where he wants to keep you. There's a problem we all have, we all understand, that's called love of self, right? None of you deal with that, right? Listen to what Augustine said many, many, many years ago when he wrote the city of God. He said this, and I quote, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glorifies in itself, the latter in the Lord. And that is exactly where we all are. We're all there in that one place. Even John Calvin once said about thinking too highly about yourself, he said, For so blindly do we all rush in the direction of self-love that everyone thinks he has a good reason for exalting himself and despising all others in comparison. That is so true, isn't it? We have a tendency to just elevate ourselves far above what we should But let me just look at the last part of that text because I really did not deal with that very well last Lord's Day. But I want to point out what Paul is driving home here at the end of verse 3. He says that we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but to think soberly as God has dealt or allotted, your translation may say, to each one a measure of faith. Now there's a lot of debate about what that means. In fact, commentaries go back and forth on what this actually has to do with. Some believe that it has to do with the the same giftedness that he's talking about, God gifting by grace in verse 6. Because in verse 6 it says this, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. And some say that what Paul is saying here is the same thing, but just choosing different words. That he's just saying God has allotted to each one a measure of faith, synonym here god has allotted to everyone a gift of grace to minister i don't buy that because i don't think that's what he means because if that's what he meant he could have used the term because in the next couple of verses he uses the term grace and gifts here he does not he uses the word faith so why does he use the word faith i think it's really pretty simple He's just simply saying, because his whole point is this, don't think so highly of yourselves than you ought to think because everybody has received the same faith. That's all he's saying. In fact, the word allotted here translated in our Bible dealt, it means to be divided. I went back and traced the use of that word through the new Testament and found out that in most occasions, it means to be divided equally. And so what God is telling us is that, listen, you ought to not think so highly about yourself, but to think soberly because God has given to each of us, every one of us, faith. A equal portion of faith. We're not better than the next guy. We're not deserving more than the next guy. We're not more elevated than the next guy. And every faith, every gift that someone has, whether it's mercy, service, giving, exhortation, teaching, prophecy, whatever it may be, are all exercised in that same faith. You come to Christ in faith, in believing and trusting in him, and you walk in faith, believing and trusting in him. Whenever, you know, I do what I do on Sunday, coming up here and teaching and preaching to you, I understand that all that I do here has no effect on you whatsoever or the body of Christ unless God's in it. I mean, it's just a waste of oratory if, if God's not in it. So as I'm preparing a message and I'm going through the text of scripture, I am repeatedly praying, Lord, help me understand this. Lord, help me get what you have in this text so that I accurately represent you to this body. And, and then I pray coming in here, Lord, please use this to effectively nurture and grow the body of Christ and make them more like Jesus and change me where I need to be changed. All that's going on because I'm exercising faith as I exercise the giftedness that God has given to me. We all should be doing that the same way with whatever gift it may be. So all he's driving home here is, is that you and I have all been dealt the same kind of faith, the same measure of faith. Therefore, there's no place for pride There's no place for like, look who I am and what position I have and how wonderful I am and how gifted I am. None of this happens apart from God's exercise of sovereign grace. Period. That's the way he intends it to be. Well, the next time we'll get into verse four. I promise. What I'd love to do now is turn our attention to the Lord's table. And in doing that, let me just ask you a couple of questions. I think it would be, in light of what we've just talked about, some things to consider. One of the blessings of the Lord's table is when we come together, it is a reminder, number one, of the needed sacrifice of Jesus. But also, it is a reminder of our own sinfulness.